This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Candy. It's good to be back recording. Yes, it's, it is. It's been a little while for it us. It has. Yes. We took pretty well almost all of December off, right? We did. Yep. Yes, but I'm excited to be back mm-hmm. and to be talking about more of the true crime behind Alfred Hitchcock's classic works. You know, I didn't ask you before, so I'm going to ask you today. What is your favorite Hitchcock movie? Ooh, <sighs> that is a really good question. I think I would have said probably Rear Window previous to seeing Rope. But mm. Rope has really come it up. It's really good. It's really, really good. But I don't know. The one we're going to talk about today is probably in, the, in my top five now. Okay. I ended up enjoying this one a lot. I too. did. I, I did. didn't realize. <laughs> yes. Honestly, I'd never heard of it. I had not seen it. Okay. You know, I, I said before that I tried to watch all of his films, mm-hmm. and I'm realizing that I missed a lot. So I think I watched a lot of his color stuff, and I did not watch a lot of the black and whites. Ah. So the other two films that we are covering this month, I had not seen before. Mm. So that's okay. been kind of a really fun rediscovery for me. Well, and I'm seeing a lot of new films, obviously, since yeah. I'm not as familiar with yeah. Hitchcock as you are. But the reason why I asked that question is because it turns out that the movie we are talking about today, Shadow of a Doubt, was Hitchcock's favorite film, which I thought was so interesting. It really because, was. you know, there are some others that are very famous that mm-hmm. I thought might be the ones he would pick. But no, this is it. In numerous it. interviews, he said this was his favorite. So I'm going to go ahead and start with an I. IMDB summary of what Shadow of a Doubt is about. Mm -hmm. And then if it's okay, we'll kind of follow our pattern and we'll give some impressions about the movie. Here's what it says. Charlotte, Charlie Newton, is bored with her quiet life at home with her parents and younger sister. She also had a younger brother. She did. Yes. Roger. IMDB. You forgot. You You forgot forgot about Roger. You forgot one of the family members. (laughs) Okay. She wishes something exciting would happen and knows exactly what they need. A visit from her sophisticated, much-traveled Uncle Charlie Oakley her mother's younger brother. Imagine her delight when out of the blue they receive a telegram from Uncle Charlie announcing he is coming to visit them for a while. Charlie Oakley creates quite a stir and charms the ladies club as well as the bank president where his brother-in-law works. Young Charlie begins to notice odd behavior on his part such as cutting out a story in the local paper about a man who marries and then murders rich widows. When two strangers appear asking questions about him she begins to imagine the worst about her beloved Uncle Charlie. Yeah. Yes. And it was a black and white film mm-hmm. released in 1943. So before we go any further, you did the rewatch. I, well, the watch. Oh, the first watch. Yeah, right. the first watch. And as, as it was for me as uh-huh. well. So let's just give a few of our impressions from okay. watching the movie. Do you want me to go through my little notes that I took as I was watching it? Sure. Uh, my first note is, Hume's in this one. This is his acting debut. I saw well. that. And you know what? I thought he was so he fun. He was adorable. He was. Him and the father, which wasn't the father, Claire. 
moments in he was Life. yes he was that's what i thought him and the father trying to figure out ways to kill each other <laughs> was adorable and they were i love that they were true crime fanatics they were, they at, were. back in the 1940s they were yes and they were also fans of agatha christie yeah. because that's the the detective that they talk about which i guess we're gonna spoil this whole film so just so you know you know that i think that should be obvious but what they talk about in he says who's that little frenchman and i even wrote in my notes who's the little frenchman hercule is belgian which in imdb <laughs> he's often mistaken for a frenchman so but they were talking about right hercule Poirot. right and i thought it was interesting that shadow of a doubt it was not a title but a phrase because mm. if you notice the d and doubt was lowercase Hmm. On, oh, okay. on the title I screen. didn't notice that. Yeah, so it's a phrase instead of a title. Huh. And on the opening credits, Alma, which was his wife, yes. worked on the screenplay. So shout out to Alma. For the first shot of both Charlie characters, they showed them both on their beds. Thinking. Yes. Yes. I liked that a lot. Oh, I loved I loved Anne. I loved the little sister Anne. <laughs> and she was a local. Yes. So they hired her as a local. I love when she's on the phone and she says, I'm trying to keep things off my mind that don't matter. It's like, <laughs> Anne, that's the way to live, sister. She, she was such a cute character. She really was. Yes. I also thought it was a very accurate household with small children, that opening scene. The lovely mm -hmm. chaos that came with having two small kids. Yes. You know, some of your noticings paralleled some of mine mm -hmm. because I... I was also taken by the every town aspect and the yes. fact that they then honed in on this kind of every family. Yes. And some of the greatest humor and also the warmth came from the dynamics of the interactions within this family. Agreed. Loved it. And then they brought in the neighbor Herb, who was the Hume Cronin yes. uh, character that you mentioned. I just loved shows up. all of that. And then that took me to, I noticed, as did you, when they talked about the credits, they gave screenwriting credit not only to Alma, but also to Thornton Wilder. Yes, they did. And so then that led me down a little rabbit hole because all of a sudden I was like, Thornton Wilder, our town. Look yes. at all the elements that I'm seeing in this movie that remind me of our town. So that was a huge thing for me. And I saw in the trivia that he had just finished Our Town and Hitchcock really liked it, but he wasn't able to fully help with the screenplay. He just kind of did a treatment and that's why he's given like acknowledgement or partial credit. So he helped help them with the layout of it. I found out a little bit more about that. So I'll chime in with that in a little bit. But I saw some of those exact same things. You know, one other thing that hit me, I don't know if this struck you, but it was almost I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but noirish, mm -hmm. the way that they would show the relationship and the interactions between young Charlie and Uncle Charlie seemed odd to me. It I thought did. this feels almost like a romantic I thought so too. relationship. I, I, I really questioned that it made it made me feel odd. Uh -huh. But then as I was researching and looking at some of the analysis, I think I understand now why they did that. And I why? think it was intentional. Really? Well, do you want to, let's save it for when we okay, come back to the it, armchair. I, I, it did. It felt a little, oh. a little incestuous to me. And I was like, Ugh. yeah, I did not I, like I even it. made the face like, Ugh, right at one point. But I did think that Teresa Wright, absolutely precious. She was adorable. She was so precious, good. smiley, so fun, so full of joy. And mm -hmm. to see the arc that she takes. Yes really really good yes and i love a strong female protagonist mm -hmm. yes it is just as a, a trivia it is 26 minutes in before we get the first clue oh okay so it's the tsbm initials on the ring yeah oh, which was big yes that, it is because this was a mystery i yep. mean a lot of this was her solving the mystery and that was one of the big clues what do i mean here i wrote that newspaper house just appeared 
What does that mean? Uncle Charlie was making the newspaper. Oh, yes. Yes, because yes. he was trying to hide yes. the one He's article. Like, Here you go. A lot of that shows him ripping a paper, and the next shot it's fully formed. <laughs> I was like, what? You didn't do that. I know. I, I actually noticed Trickery. that, Trickery. And we are 33 minutes into the film before he hurts her and gaslights her. Oh, and speaking of gaslight, he was in Gaslight, that's remember? Right, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. 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 I thought the mom and Charlie did a fantastic job of just being sweet, all-American, trusting folks. Yes. They yes. were, they just, they, it was completely believable. And you could see the mother looked at her younger brother like, I could not believe anything other than you are sparkling and wonderful. Even though his whole, we are seeing right. different things. She did not see it. Right. I kept going back to, again, that idea of the small town and the relationships and the dynamics and Thornton Wilder's Our Town because there was such purity there mm -hmm. they just there was so much love for each other so much trust and even Joseph Cotton's speech where he talks about it was after Teresa Wright says something about having the nightmare she's starting to yes. suspect and she's kind of making a point talking about having nightmares about her uncle Charlie and he comes back and says some things about you're just living life as a dream and, and you're mm -hmm. just walking through things without really seeing it and mm -hmm. I was like this is that's a our commentary. town Mm -hmm. Yes, that's our town. But I felt like what you just said is so important to this movie. If we don't see this as every town, if we don't really feel the love and the close relationship of this family that is supposed to be so representative mm -hmm. of families across America, in fact, that's the little ploy the detectives use to talk to them is mm -hmm. you're the typical American family, right. Right? right? Then we don't really feel the awfulness of the evil that Uncle Charlie has yes, brought has into, brought into the family, the family and right. how he disrupts it. I did make the note, though, speaking of the other other men, I said both the guys are using Charlie. Yeah. Like he was tricking her and saying, I'm a, I'm this person that's taking a survey or a poll or whatot. And then I thought him falling in love with her Came was out of nowhere. Real out of left field. When <laughs> yes. he said, I wrote later when he said, I love you, Charlie, Jack, the fast track, like what the heck in the garage. And she was like, um, we could be friends and let's start there. But I was with her. I was like, girl, I know he just said, I love you. And I love you. But speaking of him. Did, did you recognize him immediately? Did you ever watch Days of Our Lives? No. Okay, I did. I thought he was When I was cute. younger, they always said, and McDonald Carey and Days oh. of Our Lives. And when I saw him and I was like, oh, it's a young, handsome McDonald Carey. What character like, was he? Was he? A... He was like some patriarchal character Aww. that was always there in did that soap opera. I don't remember. I, bet I, don't, he did. I don't notice details. <laughs> but but no, that was him. And he was so young and handsome. He but, was handsome. But you're right. I, when they I were saw him, I thought, her. I bet this is a romantic interest. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But I thought the scene at 52 minutes in, it was a very abrupt transition, a laughing to basically despair. It shows them laughing. And then it we don't, I guess, see the bulk of the conversation where he tells her here's what we really think about your uncle and her first reaction was not to believe because she doesn't want to believe mm -hmm. which I think you and I can dive into in some yes. later analysis and I thought it was interesting that they used a wide angle to show how small she feels after reading the paper and seeing her ring she walks away from the library and it's a super wide angle I literally wrote that in my notes that that the shot of her in the library was so symbolic like mm -hmm. it was so intentional mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. And I thought something else we could dive into later. I wrote the question, what do you do when someone you love is bad? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's such a good question. Did you 
happened to notice on a different note where the cameo of Alfred Hitchcock appeared in this I movie. I did. I missed it again. Where was he? It was, it's so funny because after I read and saw where it was, all of a sudden something that had hit me wrong now made sense. The cards? The whole the thing? Cards. The cards! Showing all those cards? Yes. That was him, right? That was him. He yeah. was on the train to Santa Rosa. He's the one playing the cards. You see this spread. He has the entire suit of spades, uh-huh. including the ace, which was supposed to represent that as the director, he was holding, holding all, all the, the cards. But I remember when I saw it in the movie, I'm like, what was that? Yeah, I did too. I thought that too. I thought, what the heck? Yeah, it made no sense to me. I do have, if you want them now or we can do them later, I have some quotes from the book that I've referenced before. It's only a movie, Alfred Hitchcock, about different aspects of the filming. So we can do that now or we can do it in a bit. If you don't mind. You want to wait? Uh, why don't we hold it for sure. just a few minutes? Because what I'm going to do this time, I thought I would go ahead and talk about the movie first. And so I'm going to get to the part where we talk about some of the film techniques. Sure. And that would be a perfect place sure. and then we'll go into the true crime aspects after we Which take a I break. Which I know nothing about this particular true crime so I'm interested. Nor did I and here we go. Listener discretion. Oh no, for real? Yes. Now Dang. again I will be delicate yeah. but this is, this is. Do I need to put the warning uh, at the top of the yes, episode? Yes. Okay. Why don't we do that? Because this is a little, this is gruesome again. It's, I mean all of these are monstrous. This is monstrous. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. But first we're going to start with the fun part. Okay. Let's start with <laughs> the, the fun movie. part. Okay. So According to Turner Classic Movies, the screenplay actually involved the work of at least six writers, even though only four were credited. Interesting. So here's how the whole thing started. The head of David O. Selznick's story department, Margaret McDonald, told Alfred Hitchcock one day that her husband Gordon had this interesting idea for a novel that she thought would make a good movie. And uh-huh. he was interested. So this idea that her husband had come up with was basically called, I think, Uncle Charlie. And it was supposed to loosely be based on this true crime story of Earl Leonard Nelson who we're going to get into that but he was a mass murderer of the 1920s and so when they presented this idea she presented this idea to Hitchcock he said sure let's let's meet your husband let's talk about it they met over lunch one day he loved it he asked her husband Gordon to type up a nine page outline and he did and this is the start of their script just as a side note Gordon McDonald would go on to earn an Oscar nomination for best original story for what he came up with for this film. Interesting. But in the words of Turner Classic Movies, here's what happened next. Quote, outline in hand, Hitchcock put in a request for Thornton Wilder to write the script. He had admired Wilder's recent play, Our Town, and wanted to incorporate a similar sense of small town American life into the movie. Furthermore, the director was eager to work with top writers. Hitchcock remembered, quote, in England, I'd always had the collaboration of the finest writers, but in America, writers looked down their noses at the genre I work in. That's why it was so gratifying to find out that one of America's most eminent playwrights was willing to work with me and indeed that he took the whole thing quite seriously, end quote. As a matter of fact, Wilder at first wasn't terribly interested in the project. He knew he was about to receive military orders and he took the job as a way to make some extra last minute cash to help his ailing sister. But when he met Hitchcock in Los Angeles and felt the director's respect for his work, Wilder's enthusiasm rose greatly. Hitchcock recalled that they, quote, worked together in the morning and Wilder would work
work on his own in the afternoon, writing by hand in a school notebook. He never worked consecutively, but jumped about from one scene to another according to his fancy. Interesting. So then Turner Classic Movies goes on to explain in their little article here that Thornton Wilder continued to give input about other aspects of the production. He even helped Hitchcock choose the town of Santa Rosa as their filming location and gave you know feedback about the house that, that Hitchcock was picking to use as the family home in the movie. But it was about five weeks later that he found out that he was ordered to report for training at the Army Air Intelligence in Florida. Mm-hmm. The script was not yet totally finished, but Hitchcock traveled back with him so that they could talk and plan more on the way. So now moving back into Turner Classic Movies, quote, back in LA, Sally Benson, who had just written the novel Meet Me in St. Louis, I saw that too, came on board to inject some of the comedic moments and Hitchcock's wife, Alma Revel, also contributed to the script. Her influence on her husband's films cannot be overemphasized. Yes, yes. She had her own career as a film editor when the two met and married in 1929 and she collaborated closely on all his movies, mm-hmm. especially the scripts usually uncredited. Mm-hmm. Shadow of a Doubt was one of the few titles for which she did receive a credit. One of the greatest compliments Hitchcock could ever give an actor or crew member was Alma liked it. Yes, yes. They were still married when Hitchcock died in 1980. I would love some at some point for us to do a, a theme series on people that are, I don't even know how to say it. Just like, out of the spotlight. Just out of the spotlight. Yeah, just outside yes, of the spotlight. Just outside of the spotlight because she was such a huge part right. of his success and she never gets the accolades right. you that hear she about deserves. Hitchcock. Yes, you do. I didn't, you know. He would not be him without her. Yes. Well, I love loved all that because as I said even watching the movie I had all those thoughts about Thornton Wilder and Mm -hmm. his influence Mm -hmm. and then to see it written like that I was like ah that mm-hmm. makes such perfect sense. And that's why he would have credited him with that extra little thank you. One of the quotes I have is about the house specifically. Oh, okay. Choosing the house. So I'm going to go ahead and read this one for you. Okay. It is on page 147 of It's Only a Movie, Alfred Hitchcock, A Personal Biography by Charlotte Chandler. Okay. So here's what he tells the author. It starts on the bottom of 146, but goes into 147. The selection of the right house for the family was essential. I had it shopped for very carefully. I wanted to know what it would cost to buy or rent the house. It was very very important that the family didn't live beyond its means. They weren't that sort. Mm -hmm. It was also important that they didn't live below their means. This was a family that knew its place. They didn't talk about money or feel the need to talk about it. We located the perfect place and the people who owned it were very happy to have their house play in the movie. In fact, they were so happy they painted it and fixed it up (gasps) so it wasn't right anymore. (laughs) Fortunately, we were able to undo it all. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, that's such a good story. I love that. Yes. Well, a couple of other notes about the script. I would never have guessed this, but according to IMDb, the lady who played the mom, Emma Newton, was Patricia Collins, if I said that right. And she was not only an actress, but she was also a writer. Hmm. And she ended up revising the scene in the garage. I saw that on the trivia. Did you see that? Yes. Yes. The actors reportedly didn't like the dialogue the way it was written. Hmm. So she was asked to change it. And ultimately, Alfred Hitchcock liked her changes and and that's what they used in the movie. Very nice. I love that. And this is an assumption on my part, but one of the trivia notes, we, we've said this before, but I actually noticed that it's not just on Amazon Prime. Some of the other streaming services where you can rent their movies will include the trivia notes. So I've now seen this a couple different places, but one of the trivia notes that came along with the movie said that Alfred Hitchcock inserted many personal elements into this movie, which I'm assuming is because he was he had his hand in the script mm-hmm, writing and mm-hmm, the storyline as mm-hmm. it was going along to 
quickly give you some examples. Alfred Hitchcock's middle name is Joseph. That was the name of Charlie's dad, young Charlie's dad. Like the son Roger, Hitchcock was the third and youngest child in his family, and his mother's name was Emma. The bicycle accident that happened in the movie to Uncle Charlie happened to Alfred when he was young. Yeah. Anne, the young Anne, is reading Ivanhoe at the beginning of the movie, which is a book that Alfred Hitchcock loved dearly mm-hmm. as a child and had mm-hmm. read more than once. Mm-hmm. Niece, young Charlie, likes to drive a car. Alma loved driving. And the neighbor, Herb, was obsessed with murder and was <laughs> dominated by his mother, which reportedly was also true of Alfred Hitchcock. And I have a little bit about that, Ooh. too, in this book. Okay. This is from page 145, and it is him, again, quoting. It has been said, Hitchcock told me, I'm assuming the author, that I based the character of the mother in Shadow of a Doubt on my own mother. I can tell you that I did not deliberately do so, nor did I deliberately avoid doing so. Mm. My characters have their own identities, and for a time, at least, I share my life with them, more perhaps than I do with any except the closest members of my family. In this particular case, however, I have to admit that it was a time when I was thinking about my mother, who was in London. There was the constant danger from the war, as well as her Mm. own failing health. She was in my thoughts at the time. I suppose that if we think about a character who is a mother, it is natural to start with one's own. The character of the mother in Shadow of a Doubt, you might say, is a figment of my memory. A few different sources talked about the context being so important that they think one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Alfred did love this movie Mm -hmm. was because in Britain, it was war-torn and all these things were going on and yet here was this beautiful small town that he got to be part of during the filmmaking. Yeah, if if you guys will indulge me in a little bit of a lengthy read, I'll I'll summarize this paragraph, which is what you're talking about. He was troubled by the bombing going Mm -hmm. on in London. Alma had gone back to see get her own family, but he couldn't convince his mom to come to California. Instead, he convinced her to go to a country house. So, But he's mm-hmm. still worried. So that's part of what he's saying. She's on my mind. Yes. Now it goes on to talk about the set. Alma Hitchcock remembered their family having a wonderful time filming the movie. Their daughter Pat was helping in the coaching of the younger sister, which we know was mm-hmm. Anne, and it was a happy set. So now we're going back to a quote. Everyone knows how my father said he saw the whole picture in his head before he made the film, Pat Hitchcock told me. Well, at home, he said he was happy if he got 75% of what he'd seen in his head. Sometimes he got more, and then he was very, very happy. When I met him to talk about being in the film, this is now Teresa Wright, he described it as if he were seeing it in his mind. The way I think of him is that he had a little projection booth up there in his <laughs> head. And then I'll go into this further a little bit later when we talk more about Teresa, but then she talks about how he treated her on the set, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Actually, it's, it'll be a good segue because oh, well, okay. I'm moving right into casting. So okay. why don't you go ahead and share that part and that'll sure. lead us into this. Sure, this will be one of my last things I tell you about. I got a couple more things. So on 146, this is Teresa saying how he treated her. Quote, on the set, he never raised his voice. I never felt any tension. He would tell you what he wanted without too much instruction and you would know exactly what to do. You couldn't make a mistake. If you did, you knew he would be there for you. At the same time, you felt a sense of freedom. Here's what Joseph Cotton says. Joseph Cotton said that Hitchcock was not only a great director, but, quote, really wonderfully easy to work with. One of the best directors I've worked with, including Orson Welles when we did a Citizen Kane, and one of the easiest to get on with. So as I was researching, you know, I always find some photos that I think we might want to use to complement our episodes. And I found, I believe it was in a Time Magazine article, and the, the photographs might have, some of them actually come from Life Magazine back in the day. But regardless, 
fabulous. They were fabulous. Yeah. And a couple of them literally show Alfred Hitchcock during the filming of this movie where he's acting things out. He's demonstrating yeah. how he wants the actors to portray. Yeah. I think one of them is him with Teresa Wright showing her how he, he wants her to react when she's grabbed by her uncle. Oh. So it, it goes exactly along with what you're saying. Yeah. To follow up on your segue there, with the casting, Teresa Wright, we've mentioned her several times. She did such a fabulous job, but she was not actually his first choice. Alfred Hitchcock wanted either Joan Fontaine or Olivia de Havilland to play the young Charlie, but both were unavailable. Mm. So that's why it went to Teresa, who was fresh off a Best Supporting Oscar win for Mm -hmm. Mrs. Miniver. Mm -hmm. But despite that fact, this movie was Teresa's first top-billed role and only her fourth film. She was so excited to work with Alfred Hitchcock that she accepted the part without even having read the script. He just told it to her in a conversation. She said, I'm all in. (laughs) And years later, in 1959, in an interview, she said this was her favorite movie. Yeah. Yes. She talks about that in the book, too. It's the film that she's taken with her. It's the one she gets asked about Mm -hmm. the most. And just, it was a lovely, a lovely experience. It was such a strong role. Uh I mean, a lot of times you don't get the strong Uh female protagonist, especially a young female protagonist. Who goes through this much of an arc. Yes. And you get to work with the people you get to work with in this film. Right. Well, you've already mentioned a few things, such as the fact that Henry Travers plays the father, Joan Newton, and he was Clarence in A Wonderful Life. We've already talked about the... Which, um, he seemed a little bit old for those two younger kids. I thought, what in the world happened here? We got Teresa Wright, who clearly was the right age to have those parents, and then these two little moppets. I'm like, where do y'all come from? That is so funny, because one of the articles had an editorial comment from the author who said, the parents do seem a little old. Uh But other than that, could they be any more perfect? They were adorable. They were, they said, if you're looking for the perfect American mm-hmm. family, this is these it. two were. Joseph Cotton was also not the first choice for the role. He keeps wanting to use Cary Grant, doesn't he? No, in this case, he wanted to use William Powell. Oh, But yeah, MGM right. refused to loan him out. So that's why Joseph got the part. To elaborate just a bit more on the actress who played Anne. Her name was Edna May Wanacott, and she was discovered by Hitchcock at nine years old when he was out around the town like checking out exterior locations and doing some of his planning he saw her she was on a street corner with her two cousins waiting for a bus so Edna and her mother discovered discovered yes like literally (laughs) saw saw a child out on the street and was and that's how she got this role she and her mom went the next day to Los Angeles she did her screen test and she was hired although she had no experience whatsoever not even a school play. She was amazing. She was so cute. And I guess when Alfred Hitchcock spots you on the street corner, it's not as creepy as if somebody else comes up to you and is like, hey, I'm a director. You want to be on my film? No, sir, I do not. But if it's Hitchcock, you're like, yes, I will entertain this. (laughs) I think I could go for that. I think I could. Well, moving into filming, there was, it's actually the same article I just referenced. It was a 2015 Time Magazine article by Eliza Berman that was really focused in on the idea of how he made this movie so economically. Mm -hmm. I like the lead. So I'm going to read it to you. Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt is widely considered one of the most masterful films in the history of cinema. Hitchcock himself suggested in interviews that it was his favorite work from his expansive repertoire, and indie filmmakers everywhere should take comfort in that. The legendary movie was also one of Hitchcock's most frugally made. During World War II, the War Production Board imposed limits on the film industry in the U.S., capping film sets' budgets at 
$5,000, which would be around $68,000 in today's money, in order to minimize the unnecessary use of materials. Mm. Hitchcock normally spent at least $100,000 on movie sets, so the director had to think creatively in order to give Shadow of a Doubt a high-value look on a paltry budget. Maybe that's why he went to location? 100%. That's exactly what it says. To save money, they decided they were going to Mm. find those ready-made sets, a Life magazine article from 1943 explained that he decided, I'm going to find some real settings. I'm going to find a typical American city. So that is what led him to shoot most of the film in Santa Rosa, California, with a few of the opening shots filmed in New Jersey. And it was because of the decision to film on location that Hitchcock was allowed to use locals. Mm. It was far enough away from Hollywood that they were not affected by the Actors Guild guidelines that demand that you use professional actors. Okay. So not only did they use Edna May as Anne, but they also had an actress who was a local who played Catherine, that small role of one yes, of the friends. young Charlie's friends, and many of the residents. They only did that. That would be cheaper, yes. too. Yes. Earlier, you mentioned something about that shot in the library, and I thought mm-hmm. we might highlight just a few other of those, what should I call it, those Hitchcock touches. techniques or those mm-hmm. Hitchcock touches. Uh, you may have something you want to share from your book, but I'll share a couple and yeah, you chime sure, in here. Sure. One thing that I saw was Hitchcock, in an interview, said that the dense black smoke coming from the train on which Uncle Charlie arrives was deliberate. Yeah, it was supposed to be evil. yes, a symbol of imminent evil that was arriving. And another thing that was called out across a few different sources was the very memorable scene where Joseph Cotton as Uncle Charlie gives that really dark dinner speech. Time magazine identified that as one of Alfred Hitchcock's 10 most memorable scenes. And here's what they said in their little blurb about it. In the film, reportedly Hitchcock's personal favorite of all his own movies, Charlie is a smooth, charming serial killer, the Merry Widow murderer, whose adoring niece, Charlotte, gradually comes to realize that her namesake is a sociopath. The famous faded, fat, greedy women monologue that Cotton icily delivers at dinner one night finishing with a gaze straight into the camera that's both knowing and vaguely reptilian, is still deeply chilling all these years later and has informed countless similar fourth-wall-busting scenes in the seven decades since it first stunned moviegoers in 1943. I know, wasn't that beautifully written? That's really well written, Yes. yes. But I remember when he gave it, I did think, oh, wow. Like, talk about revealing... Who you really are. Yes, yes. Yes, but I thought that was nice that this Time Magazine kind of stepped back, zoomed out, and showed it as an approach. You know, Mm -hmm. having him look into the camera and break that fourth wall, I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm going to ask this question. I don't know the answer to this, so you may not either. Do you remember how the family reacted to that speech? It was very uncomfortable. And in fact, the mother said, I really don't think you should talk about women that way, especially in front of my club. Oh, that's right, because it was in front of the club. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, But it wasn't, nobody really took him to task. They just sort of, (laughs) nobody corrected him. Yeah. He didn't get corrected much at all. Even Mm -hmm. when, remember, he was so awful in the bank to his brother-in-law, like throwing suspicion on him. Yes. Nobody, everybody was too polite. Right. To actually call him on anything. But when you, the the thing you talked about at the top where you said that he charmed the bank manager, I don't feel like he charmed that bank manager at all. No. I mean, he impressed him a little bit with the money. Yeah. And the way he was so, you know, this is just kind of pocket change. 
strange to me that mm-hmm. attitude. I thought it was interesting that he told his brother-in-law go ahead and walk him out, and he did not. You saw mm-hmm. that Charlie went one way and Joe went the other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. One other observation about a Hitchcock technique that was obvious in Shadow of a Doubt was noted by Roger Ebert back in 2011 when he did a review of this movie. Here's what he said: Not many directors were fonder of staircases than yes, Sir Alfred. Yes. Mm-hmm. They impose a hierarchy of power and weakness. A character at the top of the stairs can seem to loom or be in danger of toppling, depending on whether the point of view is high and low. The flow at the house goes up the sidewalk, onto the porch, through the door, and directly up the stairs. There are outside stairs in the back, and both staircases are used for tight little sequences of threat and escape. Yeah! Notice how many variations of camera angles and lighting Hitchcock uses with the stairs. He considered them an ideal device for introducing imbalance into otherwise horizontal interiors. So important were they to him, so memorably used, that I can name some of his titles, and if you've seen them, you will instantly recall the stairs. He's right! He's right! Notorious, Psycho, Strangers on a Train, Haven't seen that one, so I can't. Frenzy, and of course, Vertigo. Yes! I was like, Roger! That was so good! That reminds me, Strangers on a Train is one that I have missed, and I want to watch it. Yeah, well, I've missed a lot of these. But, okay. (laughs) My last note about a Hitchcock technique harkens back to something you said earlier oh yeah this came up across a couple of different sources and i was a little embarrassed i hadn't picked up on it well i'm embarrassed because i don't remember what i said they talked about his intentional use which some of this is through the script not just his direction but the idea of doubles or duality oh yeah and they called out the scene Uh that you you said how that started with you had oh sleeping on the bed the the juxtaposition Mm -hmm. of her against Mm -hmm. him and it was so similar the Mm -hmm. way what they everything that was happening was just kind of a little mirror parallel kind of thing because he had the landlady come in and check on him and then she had her dad come in and check on her yes well this essay that was written it was obviously an kind of an opinion type analysis but it was on the library of congress website so they must have thought it was pretty good yeah it goes on after calling out that opening scene here's a short quote that calls out some of the other examples of twos or duality these double images are only a prologue to the film's litany of thematic doubles Uncle Charlie is stalked by two policemen in New Jersey. His niece's family plays host to two visitors, mm. themselves secretly policemen in mm-hmm. California. Charlie has two parents, two siblings, and two friends. Uncle Charlie, suspected of being the Mary Widow murderer, is temporarily cleared when one of two other suspects runs away from the police and into an airplane propeller. That was wretched. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude. The film includes two scenes in the Newton's garage, two focusing on a ring Uncle Charlie gives his niece, mm-hmm. two showing Charlie's inner interactions with a crossing guard at a busy intersection and two depicting attempts on her life the pivotal scene in which her uncle acknowledges his guilt to her and then taxes her with a crippling naivete is played out at a bar called the till two i saw that interesting yeah i thought that was kind of nice and analytical there all right we do like our facts and figures yes did you have anything you wanted to share from yes i have something it's on page 148 and the setup to this is he was screening the film and people were allowed to ask him a question and you always try to get like oh what question can i ask it's going to be a little bit different which we can identify with that having Mm -hmm. done interviews and let me get the name of the person who asked this question I'm gonna, I don't know if I'll say this right, but it was Vlada Petrik. He was to become a world-acclaimed film professor and the director of the Harvard Film Archive. 
He's at the time a film student and he was invited to one of these events. Everybody, he remembers that everybody liked Shadow of a Doubt, which he told us was his own personal favorite. Mm -hmm. So he's saying that plenty. Now, here's the question he asked. Quote, you are fascinated by mystery and suspense. You treat fear. How did you become so interested in these themes? He said, that's a very interesting question. I've never told this to anyone before, but I do know exactly. It happened when I was in my cradle. I was lying there, too small to move. And over me was this huge face of one of my mother's sisters. My aunt was bent over the cradle and her big face was moving closer and closer, getting bigger and bigger as it came towards me. Suddenly, this huge face was making horrible sounds, bibble, 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 <laughs> as she ran her fingers over her lips, end quote. So here's the part I thought was interesting. Petrick always remembered Hitchcock's answer. Through the years, he noted that while Hitchcock didn't use the close-up often, uh-huh. he did use it to great effect to create a feeling of horror. Ooh. Some of the most memorable images in Hitchcock films are in close-up to create intense emotion. Whenever Petrick saw one of the horror close-ups, he remembered that evening in Belgrade and thought of the image of that huge face peering into baby Alfred's cradle. Oh, that's fun. I Isn't like that. Isn't that neat? Yes. Ooh, we've covered a lot. Well, the last thing we'll say before we go to break okay the reception this film when it was released received a lot of critical acclaim received the one nomination which was for gordon mcdonald's original story it did not win but mm. that was an honor it was selected in 1991 by the library of congress for preservation in the united states national film registry so this is a film that has been recognized when it was first released and later as being masterful right yeah. it was a great film it was but despite the praise it was a box office disappointment when it was released and according to the trivia released with the movie it actually only ranked number 81 mm. for the box office that year i'm wondering if it has something to do with the times it's in 1943 right yes so that's right in the middle of the war well let's take our break and when we come back be prepared oh dear yes we're going to talk about the true crime do you love tea? Do you love entertainment? Do you love listening to stories from your two new BFFs? Then consider joining the club over at buymeacoffee.com. For $5 per month, you can be a part of the 1939 Club, otherwise known as the Golden Year of Cinema. When Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach of Mice and Men, Wuthering Heights, Hound of the Baskervilles, The Little Princess, Babes in Arms, Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and of course, The Wizard of Oz were released. Perks include a 5% discount on new merchandise, a shout out for new members, an opportunity to be listed as a supporter in show notes, and exclusive access to bonus content. However, if you're feeling doubly generous, you can join the 1993 Club, otherwise known as the greatest year of cinema. This is the year that Schindler's List, The Sandlot, The Fugitive, Rudy, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Sleepless in Seattle, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Mrs. Doubtfire, Grumpy Old Men, and of course, Jurassic Park were released. Additional perks in this club include a 10% discount on Scandal Water merchandise, the opportunity to record a shout out of your own, and the chance to vote in our guaranteed content poll, along with the warm and sunny feeling that you're supporting your besties. If clubbing isn't your thing, there's a one-time gift option too. Either way, those who support Scandalwater report fewer bad hair days, more green lights and traffic, and a grander sense of purpose and wonder at least once per day. Scandalwater, we do the research so you don't have to. All right, we are back to talk about the true crime behind Shadow of a Doubt. Okay. And I had never heard about this I in neither. my life. Nope. Yes. So this involves serial killer Earl Leonard Nelson, who was known as the Gorilla Man. He was also called the Dark Strangler. He had several, sometimes the Gorilla Killer. We'll talk about why okay. in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But he had several nicknames. And what I'm about to share is absolutely appalling. Are we regretting the, the true crime <laughs> section? 
version of this theme? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's appalling. It is still fascinating, yeah. but it's just absolutely awful. And, and we're giving I'm going props to... to Alfred for cleaning up these and making them right. more entertaining. Right. Yeah. yeah. And also, I'm going to try to be really delicate. Okay. Okay. While we, many of us, have never heard of him, an article on the lineup website says, quote, During the 1920s, the murderer known as the Gorilla Man left a trail of more than 20 bodies throughout the United States and Canada, making him one of the most pro prolific and feared serial killers of the early 20th century. I wonder why we've not heard of him if he's I got this reputation. No, I'm not sure. Hmm. A number of other sources labeled him as the first serial sex murderer. So, oh. yes, so he apparently is notorious for some things, but he's not one of the people that mm. you that uh, I guess people of our generation have heard mm-hmm. much about. Mm-hmm. So, Earl Leonard Nelson was born in 1897 in San Francisco, and because both of his parents had died of syphilis by the time he was two he ended up being raised by his maternal grandparents well apparently his father had it and died but he had given it to his mother as well yes many sources seem to feel that part of the reason why Earl I'm going to call him Earl okay um, turned out the way he did was because of the way he was raised by his grandparents they were supposedly devoutly religious domineering very strict Mm. it's Sounds reminiscent of some things we talked about before. Teaching him from a very young age that having intimate relationships with someone else was very, very wrong. However, a retired law professor named Alvin Esau, who recently wrote a book called The Gorilla Man Strangler Case, serial killer Earl Nelson, says that there's actually no evidence that the grandparents were that fanatical. He suggests that this is just part of the mythology around this Mm. serial killer. Mm. This is, yet again, I feel like I've said this so many times, so much conflicting information. This was a tricky one. I just went with what I seemed to see most often and yeah. what seemed to be corroborated. Yeah. And I I don't know. We may have played our, our hand a little bit here. We sometimes record these episodes out of order. So we have already recorded next week's episode, which is why she and I are reacting in a certain way. But you're going to hear next week that there's another, it's just another fanatical religious thing. And I hate that. I hate that when that's put out there as a reason somebody turns to deviancy. Mm-hmm. That just bothers me. Yeah. But. Anyway. Yeah, I hate that too. Well, he had issues with his behavior from a very young age. A few different sources mentioned that he was expelled from grade school at the age of seven, but that his behavior... You have to be bad to be expelled at seven. Yes. And I mean, I don't know if they... Well, I mean, expelled means they send you somewhere else. Yeah. So I'm assuming he left that school and yeah. went somewhere else, but I didn't actually see that. But his behavior reportedly became even more erratic after he suffered a terrible accident when he was only 10 years old. Most of the sources seem to agree that the accident happened when he was riding a bicycle Mm. and he somehow collided with a streetcar. All of the sources seem to agree that the impact did hurt him severely. He had a hole in his temple and it it left him unconscious for something like six days. And then after the accident, his behavior really became much more erratic. He suffered from severe headaches. He suffered from memory lapses. Later, when he would go, spoiler alert, when he would be in a mental hospital, he would talk of hearing voices mm. and, and different things that were so going on in his mind. this is some kind mind. of brain injury that it's altered his personality. It seems as though that's the case. Or accelerated an already bad Right. He may have already had some gotcha. mental health issues, but re- regardless, this definitely caused things to, to worsen. 
when he was 14, his grandmother died. I think grandfather was already gone. So at this point, he went to live with his aunt Lillian and her family. And then while staying with that family, he would often just disappear for days at a time doing not sure what, but this was reportedly when he became involved heavily with alcohol and other illicit activities. Mm. And then when he was 18, he was sent to San Quentin prison for two years after being caught breaking into a cabin that he thought was abandoned. But then the owner came back and so he ended up... San Quentin's also pretty bad. Yeah. Once out of prison, for a while he tried the military life. He entered the army, but then didn't like the chores and the guard duty. He would also not like being told what to do right so he walked away from that later tried the navy both of the times i think he used a different name earl farrell was one of the names he used he used a few different ones along the course of his lifetime but i think that's the name he used in the military because he's farrell it was interesting i did notice the choice Mm -hmm. of that word while still in the navy in 1918 he was sent to the napa state mental hospital again i think it was because of erratic behavior and the doctor who conducted the entrance interview said that Earl told of hallucinations and paranoid delusions. But while in this hospital, he wasn't under heavy security and he found it pretty easy to escape. So he got out several times. In fact, to the point that some of the other patients jokingly called him Houdini. And <laughs> a, a couple of times they went and found him and brought him back. Yeah. And the Navy at some point decided he's not in our Navy. He's at a hospital. So in 1919, they discharged him. And the hospital, I think it was his third escape. They decided we're not going to go track him down. And they just, they just let him go. File. Yes. Oh, so my he's, gosh. He's out. While he was still technically listed as an escapee, though, back in 1919, he married a much older woman named Mary Martin. And this marriage quickly ran into trouble due to his strange behavior yeah mary sweetheart no this guy is showing so many so many red flags oh it was it was bad it was very bad different articles would give different examples so i'm just going to give you a couple Uh there were some bad things but here's some that are not quite as extreme Uh but would be very concerning Uh as a wife so he had a hard time keeping a job And when not employed, sometimes he would get up in the middle of the night to say he was going out to look for work. And then he might leave the house in one outfit of clothing and return in different clothes or sometimes just be gone for days at a time. And then, you know, oh, I haven't been gone. Oh, dear. Yes. Well, regardless, all kinds of things happening. She quickly became frightened of him. One source said he threatened to kill her at one point, but they ended up only living together about six months and kind of parted ways. That's good for her. Exactly. So again, Lots of trouble in his life, but in May of 1921 is when he started to act on his deviant urges. Earl Nelson at that time, one day in May, noticed a young girl, and so he posed as a plumber to get into the house where she was now down in the basement, and he attempted to molest this 12-year-old girl. Mm. Thankfully, her brother heard her screaming and was able to chase Earl out of the house. Good. And that same day, he was arrested again because... Because he was having so much trouble with his behavior while he was with the police acting so strangely, they decided they needed to send him back to the state mental hospital where, in the terminology of the day, the medical staff tentatively diagnosed his condition as constitutional psychopathic state. What does that mean? Constitutional? I I think basically he's psychopathic. Like this is, yeah, he's... This is the way he is. Right, yes. But because there was no known cure... 
for that condition. Again, basically, it was just like, we're just going to put you back in Ah. here with the other patients and leave you alone, which meant he went back to escaping. Oh, gosh. And they just gave up on trying to recapture him and decided, we'll just discharge him in 1925. That's such a bad way to deal with that, guys. Yeah. Well, yeah, because this... It's, this is basically just a year before his killing spree yes. starts. Yes. Yeah. In fact, according to some sources, most people think, or most of the sources say, that the killing spree began in 1926. But there are some who argue that there there were three murders that occurred in Philadelphia in late 1925, and some think that that was his doing as well. Mm-hmm. So it could have been that the murders happened very shortly after he was released that if last I, time. I'm, I'm not a suing kind of person, but if if I was a family member of somebody that got killed, I would go and do whatever I could to sue that hospital and be like, you guys, he just escaped and he went, well, I don't, I don't feel like catching him. So let's just let him go. And then he did all of this stuff. And I don't remember if it was which time it was that he was discharged, but one of the times that he was discharged from the hospital, they literally put improved no! on his file. Mm-mm. Yeah. So most of the experts think that the killing spree began in 1926, according to author Harold Schechter, who wrote the book Bestial, The Savage Trail of a True American Monster, quote, in the winter of 1926, Leonard commenced a 16-month spree of brutality that stretched across the United States and into Canada, claiming at least 22 lives. That's horrifying. And well, but hang on, I'm just commentary here. Most of the sources said that they thought, they suspected the number was higher, Uh. but 22 is what they felt comfortable right comfortable saying Uh. we really feel strongly we can attribute these to him then another source commented his trail of dead bodies led from philadelphia to chicago san francisco baltimore oakland buffalo and ended in winnipeg that's not all the cities that's just naming some of them to give you an idea of how he's just crisscrossing yes he was just going across the country murdering Uh. mostly women so he had a pattern this is awful i'm gonna say it one time and then I'm going to kind of just, move past I'll it. just move past it All and right. just, okay. Basically what he liked to do was find a house that had some kind of a sign that said rooms for rent mm-hmm. or house for sale. And then he would find a way to get into the home by saying he was a potential renter or in some cases it was usually the renter because that's what was happening during this time. Yeah. But there was at least one case where a house was for sale and then he said he was a potential buyer. Okay. A lot of the sources say that he knew scripture and he, ah. he often would have a Bible. So some of the sources called out that he might have a Bible with him as a way to gain trust and he would talk scripture and that might be a way to win over mm-hmm. the landlady mm-hmm. because that's generally what would happen is it would be a landlady mm-hmm. who let him in. Now mm-hmm. if there if there happened to be another man in the house, he might leave that place. But if he discovered that this woman alone. was alone, then what he tended to do was he would usually strangle the woman. Immediately? And then, well, I mean, he might gain her trust okay. first. Okay. But but then uh, to, to kill her, he would strangle her. And then after her death, he would have relations with the body. Mm. And then he would generally hide it somewhere, which might be under the bed, mm. might be behind something in the basement. It might be the attic, just wherever he thought mm-hmm. nobody would find it for mm-hmm. a while. And then he would often steal some items from the home, like jewelry or clothing, whatever that he could take to a pawn Hawk. shop to mm-hmm. get money for. 
store or take to a secondhand store, trade things in, mm. get new clothing or whatever. So that was basically his pattern. Mm. Most of the women were in their 50s or 60s because that's the general age of the landladies yeah. who were running boarding houses mm-hmm. at that time, I think usually. And after he'd killed the first five or six, people were starting to report like specific details about so him to the police. Mm-hmm. Yes, witnesses were reporting things. And so the police were starting to build this picture. But remember, he's traveling too. So that makes it trickier. But some of the witnesses would say they saw a smiling stranger outside one of the victim's buildings the day of the murder. Or others who claimed they thought they saw the killer at these boarding houses would describe the person as being dark and stocky with long arms and large hands. And it was because of those witness reports oh, that's why that the, the new Yes, the newspapers oh. started calling him Dark Strangler, Gorilla Man, or Gorilla Killer. So as Earl continued his murderous spree across the U.S., often getting around by hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. He did make some mistakes. For example, it was in one instance in California, he attacked a 28-year-old pregnant woman who was showing him her home that was up for sale. This is the case where she actually survived. And therefore, she was able to give a few more details about Ah, his appearance. She she told him he's five feet eight. He's tall, well-dressed, well-spoken. And we get a tiny insight into his strategy because she later told reporters that when he first came in, she didn't feel threatened at first. But in retrospect, she had noticed that she thought it was really peculiar that he kept commenting on like these little intricate details about her house, particularly the ceilings. And she said, quote, I realize now that he was trying to... To get me to look up oh. towards the ceiling so that he could get behind me and grab my throat. Oh. So that's a little bit into his strategy. After she survived, it was 10 days later that he killed someone else and the police were able to get fingerprints from that woman's bedpost. And then another time where he was staying in a boarding house, this time, you know, he actually did stay in some boarding houses along the way because he had to sleep somewhere. Uh-huh. So in this particular boarding house, he had not murdered somebody, but he gave that land lady and another female boarder pieces of jewelry as a gift and later they confirmed but you know the police were able to track it down that those items he had given them belonged to this lady named Florence Monks that was one of his victims mm. so again all of these things the police are starting to put clues together they're, they've got a description that's coming together of the killer they have some details about his strategies some cities were putting out warnings don't rent your rooms yeah, don't yes. let strangers into your home and I mean people were terrified Terrified. terrified. I would be terrified. Yes. Terrified. And the murders are continuing. They were all women except for one male baby Aww. that was killed along with his mother. Aww. By June of 1927, he'd made it to Canada. And there, a few more important things happened in terms of leading to his capture. So, again, we said he had a habit of selling some things that mm-hmm. he, you know, that he had stolen. So, in this particular instance, he did that. He went into a secondhand store. If I remember correctly, he saw a description of what he was wearing and it was so, I mean, like it literally was what he had what on. He had on. <laughs> and so he went to a secondhand store uh-huh. thinking, I need to get rid of this clothing. Uh-huh. And he traded some items for new clothes okay. and, and had some other items. But with then him they as had well. the clothes that they could track and say, who just bought mm-hmm. these? Yeah. And then they all, and then he went from there to a barber shop. And so what ended up happening was the police managed to track things. They got to the right shop. The shopkeeper gave them some information and details they were able to then track to the barber shop where the barber tells them or the owner of that barber shop tells them oh you know he had scratches on his scalp Mm. and I noticed that you know I asked him about that there was 
like blood. They are tracking him down. They are closing in. There was this brief manhunt. They finally caught him in Manitoba, but he was able to pick a lock, the lock to his cell, and escape from his jail cell. This guy. I know. But here, this is so satisfying. It was like 12 hours later, he goes to catch a train and he happens to pick one that has a whole slew of policemen on it. Nice. So he gets recaptured. I wonder if that's why they use the train with Uncle Charlie because that led to his. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the end of a short trial, I think it was only like three days. Yeah. What are you going to do? The jury took 48 minutes to find him guilty of murder and sentenced him to hang. Mm. There was no appeal Mm -hmm. on Friday the 13th of January 1928 after walking 13 steps to the gallows. He became the 13th person to hang at the Vaughn Street Jail. That's a lot of 13s. Yeah, and I believe he was 30 years old. He was he was young when this happened. So what what day was he hung? It was Friday the 13th of January 1928. Oh, and this is going to come out on January 9th for us. Of so... 1924. 20... 20... <laughs> oh, yeah. We just time traveled. That's why I like this podcast. We pop in and out of time. Of 2024. So almost... Almost 100 years later. Wow. Armchair psychologist. That was the case of Earl Leonard Nelson. Yeah, he's terrible and gross. Yeah, awful, awful, awful. But let's go ahead now for our armchair. Okay. Let's just go ahead and see if we can pick out how might this case have influenced the movie? What are the comparisons we see? Well, we talked about uh, the jewelry. So Uncle Charlie stole the jewelry, gave jewelry that belonged to someone else. The train, the fact that he meets his demise on the train. In the case of the real killer, he got on a train with a bunch of policemen. In the case of Uncle Charlie, he gets on a train and you can see that he's got a future victim in mind that's also Mm -hmm. on that train but he ends up Mm -hmm. falling off of the train and that's where he meets his demise so I saw those two things personality wise the charm Mm, yes that sort of thing yes you you named so many good things I'll add a few more I think one of the significant things to me was not just the fact that we had the jewelry but also that the jewelry provided a clue yes was Mm -hmm. such an important clue Mm -hmm. that helped Mm-hmm. to like like they were able to say the these items belong to this particular right. lady and when she saw those initials that helped her understand put it, it together really yes. so let's go back to the questions i ask at the top let me ask you these questions which mean we may not have an answer for but something to think about and something to put to our listeners to think about why do we think because this man got married so he obviously wooed a woman who believed in him fell in love with him thought she was in love with him the sister charlie's sister and niece loved uncle charlie Mm-hmm. What is it? Why? How was he able to do this? My answer is the the charm that you feel from a person isn't always who they truly are. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to get to know someone mm-hmm. before you trust them fully. And if you hear something, if you hear something negative about some someone that you love, of course, our first response is going to be no, that's impossible. But we need to open our minds up to what if it is possible? Mm-hmm. You know, what if it is true? Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know if that's a question per se, but I want your thoughts on that you know it's so interesting as an educator we used to sometimes talk about the difference between rapport and trust Mm -hmm. you can develop instant rapport with someone by using certain strategies but trust is developed over time and that requires knowing the genuine person Mm -hmm. and I think both of the fellas you know the real killer and also the character Uncle Charlie they knew how to create rapport they knew how to connect 
connect to somebody in the moment Mm -hmm. to make you think you like them to make you think you trusted them but if you got to know them on a deeper level you would have realized you didn't at all because because and so I think they were the charmers that was another parallel the fact that they invaded your own home Mm -hmm. they they Mm -hmm. you were in this place of your safety your comfort they this evil came into your home Mm -hmm. to do these awful things to you I think that that's one of the pieces is how they were able to use their strategies to create instant rapport and I think the other thing that we've already actually touched upon is how we are so ingrained to be polite and to try to be compliant Mm -hmm. and to think the best of people that sometimes like they didn't call Uncle Charlie when he made a absolutely horrendous speech speech at their dinner table or what he did to his brother-in-law Joe at the Mm -hmm. bank that Mm -hmm. was not right no it wasn't but because of politeness politeness. yes you let those things go we heard from the one example of the lady who survived that when Earl came into that house she wasn't on guard he was charming he had the rapport but let's say you started to notice things how long before you would actually act on it because you're so trained to to be be polite polite. Mm -hmm. To, to be the civil person, to be the host. I think those are a few of the ideas that come to me when I think about your question, but so I'm what not sure would if we I say, answered it. Oh yeah, it's just, it's more discussion rather than answer. And I'm trying to turn this into like a valuable, what can we take away from this? My other thought would be, how do we, how do we help people or advise people to discern between the charm and the trust? Or what'd you call it? The rapport and the trust. So how do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? It's, you don't always. It takes time and I actually getting it. to know somebody. The time. Give right. it time. Because a lot of the times what a personality like this will do is move very fast mm-hmm. because they don't have the ability. A wise man once told me, crazy reveals itself. Crazy <laughs> leaks yes, out. Crazy yes. leaks out. And it does yes. with time because right. they don't have the mental capacity to keep up the facade. Right. So they got to move real fast. Right. And I guess just give it time. Just give it enough time. Mm-hmm. My other question to you, if we have time, is what do you think you should do if you discover that someone you love is evil? How should you handle that? Because young Charlie had that had that dilemma. So it's interesting that you asked that question because I think you bring you, you bring us back around to what we said at the beginning. We were both a little appalled by the fact that it seemed as though they were almost treating the two of them as though they might romantic. have romantic chemistry. Mm-hmm. I saw a few bits of literary analysis that talked about the fact that it was kind of intentional because because one of the themes that Alfred Hitchcock said he was going for in this movie was that you always destroy the one you love. Mm. And so he was actually trying to create this idea of how her she almost she was almost in love with her uncle. Like she was she had hero worship, yes. but she also almost loved him, thinking that he was this perfect man, but then she had to make the decision despite the fact that she loved him because he was bad. Mm-hmm. She did have to basically make the decision that she was going to get out of here destroy him yeah although that's something that like she never would give him away like she still protected him like like despite the fact that she called him and wanted him to leave called him out on it and wanted him to leave she still I think she did it for her mother I think she did it for her mom I don't think at that point I think if mom hadn't been in the picture she knew that if her mother knew like I think she felt okay I'm now strong enough 
mm-hmm. to know that he is evil, but I don't think that my mom is. Because right. she said, we set it up in the early part of the film that she adores her mother. Yes. And she equally. felt like her poor mother was already overburdened yes. and not appreciated yes. enough. Yes. I, I, agree I think with that you. was her motivation is to protect her mom. But I don't know. That's something I, I don't have the answer. That's something that's going to haunt her the rest of her life because mom is going to, for the rest of their lives, talk about what a great man he was. The death is going to be seen as something that was accidental or maybe even mom's going to blame young Charlie a little bit because they were on the train together, died. I don't know. It's it's irreparable damage either way. Yeah, it's interesting. Did the movie tell us how, I don't recall if we heard what the story was. No, I think we just heard death. the eulogy of he was a okay. great guy, blah, okay. blah, blah. She's standing out there with the, the detective. Right. So basically young Charlie has to live a lie. Yes, in the order rest of her life. For mm-hmm. her mother to continue to believe a lie that will yes. give her comfort. Yes. Yeah. It's sad. It is sad. At the same time, a serial murderer is no longer on the loose. That's true. Which is the positive part, I guess. In but both cases. Either way, what a thought-provoking mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. It leaves you with something to think about. It mm-hmm. leaves you with something to talk about. Mm-hmm. It, I it, thought it was a really good depiction of a person that portrays themselves as um, charming and good mm-hmm. and how they can be just evil incarnate. Right. I will say, I mean, obviously with every movie, I usually have a few parts where I'm like, oh, come on. If my uncle started openly trying to murder me, yes, I'm yes. sorry. It's yes. over. I'm not protecting anybody. No, no that's he it. He locked me in a barn with a running vehicle. Yes. He he loosened boards to try to kill me on yes. the stairs. I'm yes. She sorry. recovered awful fast, though. She, when the, she's in the garage and she's like, just come out and Hume Cronin's like, I heard something. I'm like, well, Hume, why didn't you open the door? But he comes and tells everybody. But anyway, she comes up. She's like, no, mom, I'm fine. You go on without me. And they left her. And they left her. Like, come on, come on. Yeah, but yeah. So, I mean, you always have to suspend your disbelief Mm -hmm. a little bit. Still, really enjoyed this movie. Very much so. And we hope it left you guys with some questions to think about in your own in your own life. Yes, and you should watch it. If you've not seen it, you should watch it. Amazon Prime. You can rent it or you can buy it. Yes, and it's only like three or four dollars. Yes, yes, yes. So, who are we going to cheers? Well, we've already said that Alfred gets our cheers the whole month. Yes. So, let's give it to Teresa Wright, who was a very, very outstanding heroine who had a great emotional arc and who eventually, you know, I'm proud that she, at least in her own mind, matured and saw the truth. As the character, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As the character. uh, Young Charlie, as the character. She did a great job portraying that arc Mm -hmm. of a person that comes to know the truth and matures a lot. Yes. You know? Yes. Cheers to you, Teresa Wright. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. 
It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.